What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Caffeinated Bible Chatter. This is Kylo Shields. And again, I'm here with Dylan Brown. We got the, the sword out in front of us. The coffee's out. It's hot. I am back to, to black coffee this time. Mm. Can't do latte twice in a row. Uh, how's your coffee over there, Dylan? It's good. Uh, we're drinking a Starbucks pod out of the Keurig with, uh, with some, what is that? Southern Butter Pecan International Delight Creamer. It's pretty solid. I would recommend it. So that's what I'm sipping on. I will say it gets cold in the studio, so I've noticed that my, my coffee gets less hot very quickly. Yeah. So I'm trying to get yeah, this. Drink it quick. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> drink it quick or it's going to turn into iced coffee before you know it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right, well, this is the, the third episode of this series we're doing um, on God's Word, on the King James. Um, the first one we did, if you missed it, it was two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about, did God preserve his words? Um, so the question was, God said he would preserve them. Where are they? Where are those words? Right. Um, and a verse that we keep referencing for all this, I'll go ahead and read it real quick, I guess. Uh, Psalms chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, the promise of preservation. Uh, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a fire or in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So he said he'd preserve them. Where are they? Right? And then the episode after that, this was last week's, um, uh, we talked about is the KJV superior is what we titled it. Right? So we, we were talking about the, the King James is available. A lot of people reference the originals. Uh, they're, they're not. Right? Uh, we talked about the, the King James, Dylan mentioned as bore more fruit than the originals. Right? And the, the, the promise of the church that kept that. We went to Revelation chapter 3. Um, so we just gave some points there. If, if you missed that, we gave some points on why the King James is superior to the originals and why it's superior to a lot of the other versions out there today. Um, and then today, we'll, we'll, it'll be the third part, and I'm not sure what we're titling this, something with internal and external evidence, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so Kyle read, I thought maybe what I'd do, I didn't mention this beforehand, but we, I can highlight the seven things that uh, was listed last episode. That way, if okay. someone hasn't listed, they'll at least know and hopefully maybe whet their appetite to go back and listen to that. Yeah. Um, but I'll first read our other key verse that we've read in this entire series. Uh, Kyle, of course, read uh, Psalm 12, 6 and 7. And we'll go back to that verse in this episode for certain reasons. Um, but the other one was Matthew 24, 35, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and the context is actually the second coming of Christ and they're asking questions about that. But he says, heaven, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And so in both of those verses, again, I would say uh, maybe not the most important, but the in all of this, the groundwork has to be laid in your mind that God has promised preservation to his words. And so that's why we started this series with that episode two episodes ago. And that's why we keep reading those two verses, because... That's the one thing that uh, just makes no sense with the uh, you know when looking at how the Bible critics view the Word of God, they don't believe there's a perfect Bible, and I just I don't know how you get to that assumption or to that belief system when God has a lot of clear clear teaching on the promise of preservation. Now, that's why we we did last week go through why we believe it's in the King James because. I will at least give somebody an argument to say, okay, well, how do we know it's in the King James? But 
I don't get the argument of, again, that we don't believe that the words are formulated somewhere for us to read. I don't understand that argument based on promises of Scripture because if God broke those promises, okay, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my, my words shall not pass away. Well, we know that heaven and earth is going to pass away because he's going to make a new heaven and new earth. We talked about that in eternity future. Okay, but he says his words will never pass away. So if we don't have them, then I don't know what you do with, do with that other than the fact that God lied there, that Jesus Christ did not give the truth. And uh, man, if he didn't tell the truth there, then again, like we've said in the past, how do we know he didn't tell the truth in verses about eternal life, verses about salvation, and stuff like that? So I just don't know how you, how you come to that assumption or that belief system. So that's why we tried to challenge that. And I believe we did. But those seven things that we listed last week, I really just tried to take it from the approach of if somebody were to come up to me on the street or somebody were to um, come up to me at church or something like that and say, hey, you know, I hear you say this stuff about King James. Why, you know, the King James this, King James that. Why are you a King James guy? Why do you, why do you stick with a book that has uh, words that with the ETH on the end, you know, thinketh and loveth and why do you... What's up with the yees and the these and, and all? Why, why go with a version that has all that? Well, okay, and we've been very bold throughout this entire podcast since we've been doing it that we're King James guys. Well, I don't think we're ugly about it, but we are direct about it. Um, and so, if we're going to take that stance, you know, I got to know why I believe that. Have some reasoning for that, not just again, like I've said before. Me and Kyle, we don't do do things because of tradition. I actually. I actually couldn't give two rips about tradition, the traditions of men. Um, I know of some people, and they're, they're, it's fine. That I guess they do this. I mean, I, I, I don't do it, obviously, but they do a lot of things because of tradition. And I'm just not, I'm just not wired that way. I could care less about it. And so I was actually, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I was presented with something in my early 20s with a potential opportunity in, uh, in ministry or ministry training that would that had a stance that wasn't directly on the King James Bible. And I had been raised in a church that had the standard of the King James Bible. So I was presented with something in my early 20s when I was getting serious about the Word of God and ministry that I had to endeavor in, and that was, do I believe that God's words are in the King James, or do I just do it because I was raised that way? Um, and I, a lot of people, I believe, do... Uh, go to the King James because it's just convenient. It's the way they were raised. It's the way their papa and mama lived and, and read from and, and etc. Um, and I, I just didn't want to be that way uh, because I don't really care about the traditions of men. And so I went on this journey, uh, studied this stuff out for myself for a year or two. And, it's, and I have to restudy stuff when we're going through the series because you forget things. Um, but so I laid out a long way to go around to say that I, la- I laid out seven things last week Um and we're actually going to dive in in detail. This this whole episode is going to be about the first two reasons I listed last week. So the seven reasons, because we're Baptists and we love the word, are the number seven. That we believe God's perfect words were preserved in the King James Bible. is because number one, the internal evidence, which is comparing the product to product. Number two, because of external evidence. Number three, because English is the primary language of the world. Number four, because there are no copyrights on the King James text. There are on the other versions, every other version, actually, English version. Uh, number five, because of God's promise of preservation, as we just spent time talking about. Number six, like Kyle said, because of the fruit of the King James Bible, more fruit produced from the King James Bible in the, in the uh, Philadelphian age than there has been from any modern version combined. It's not even close. 
Number seven, because of the way the King James is constructed, which is very similar to internal evidence. But that was the seven reasons. And so again, if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to that. And uh, man, prove that out for yourself. Maybe think the things that we say are crazy, and that's fine. Um, I don't think they are, obviously, or I would change the way that I believe. Uh, but go out and uh, go back and listen to that if you haven't. And so, like I said, in this episode, the goal is to take those first two reasons, internal and external evidence, and to dive in a little bit more uh, deeply or you know, kind of look through the details of that in this episode because those are really the two biggest reasons. That's why they're number one and number two. And so it's, it's a big reason on why we believe God's words are preserved in the King James. So internal evidence, again, uh, is the evidence inside the actual Bible that we have in our hand. So it's just what, what we have from, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in the product that we have. Not in the originals. We've talked about that. Not in, not in any of that stuff, but in what we actually have. And so we talked about this before, but many people, many pastors will hold up the Bible. They'll be holding up the Bible and say, this is God's inerrant. The Bible is inerrant, you know, infallible, inspired. This is the perfect word. But they actually, if someone were to corner them and say, you believe that book you hold in your hand is perfect? They'd say, well, well, no, what I really meant was, you know, and then they'll go refer to the originals and that kind of thing. And so, but when we say internal evidence, we're talking about the evidence of what we the Bibles that me and Kyle are actually right now looking at. We believe they're perfect. And so maybe even, I was thinking about this a little bit, Kyle, after we dropped the episode last week. I think the title was great. Uh, but maybe you you read that title and, and you actually, using the word superior, maybe you think that me and Kyle just think that the King James is better than the other versions. Well, we do think that. But we don't just think that it's better. We actually think that it's perfect. So if you think that we're crazy but didn't know that, then uh, understand that because that'll make you really think we're crazy. Okay. So we don't just read like, but I say that because a lot of people in the early 1900s when all these other versions were starting to come out, they would say that we have a reliable translation in the King James. It's reliable. That's what Schofield would say. God bless Schofield. He would say it's a reliable translation. Well, I mean, okay, I guess that's, you know, there could be worse things said, but we don't just believe it's reliable. We believe it's perfect. And so we'll hit some of that today to try to explain that in, in, in internal evidence and external evidence. And then I think next week, that this could potentially change, but next week I think we're going to dis- discuss specifically can a translation itself be inspired. We've already talked a little bit about that, but maybe dive into that a little bit deeper. So, Again, and, and by the way, next week maybe when our guest comes on, I know we mentioned something about that. Um, he wasn't able to come on today, but be in tune because he will be on soon, and uh, it, 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 it'll be good. And by the way, Facebook, I don't think, liked the title of that last episode either. Oh, yeah, they, I, don't, yeah I don't think so. It blocked one of our posts. The so. liberals <laughs> just saw the word superior. Yeah. And they yeah. got, like, it doesn't matter if it's talking about men versus women. Uh, it was talking about... King James versus non-King James, if it's talking about, you know, anything superior just makes them nervous because, uh, yeah. I probably shouldn't even have mentioned that name because now they're going to get... This is going to get flagged. Yeah. You may never hear this episode. <laughs> That's right. Um, and when I, and by the way, I just caught my, when I said the whole men versus women thing, I'm talking about like women's and men's sports. Like, I don't know if you know this, but like in the political realm, that's a big deal because uh, I've got two daughters and a wife and I love women, but... 
they have a problem acknowledging that men are just faster and stuff in sports. It's just kind of weird. So maybe I shouldn't have been saying any of that, but but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, we're flagged for sure. I love all the women out there. I got three of them in my life. Well, more than that, but three in my home. Anyway, um, so internal evidence again is the evidence inside the actual Bible that we have. So it's it's comparing product to product, opening a King James on one side and an ESV on the other or NIV on the other or whatever. Um, it's just comparing those two. We believe the King James stands out above that, clearly. Also, external evidence, as we're looking at this, external evidence is the evidence outside of just looking at the text itself. It's really manuscript evidence. It's the line of manuscripts that our Bible comes from versus the line of manuscripts that the other Bibles come from. All right, so let's let's dive into it. Uh, first, let's hit external evidence. Now, I will say I'm going to say a lot of things that were said and mentioned, or similar things that were said and mentioned in our literal interpretation versus allegorical interpretation episode. And that'll make sense why that is here in just a second. Uh, but you could also reference back to that for maybe some similar type talking points. Um, but in external evidence, we this is nothing secret. Even, even the critics and the modern version guys would admit this. The King James comes from the Texas Receptus, and we've mentioned that to you, which comes from Antioch. So the Texas, uh, that line of manuscripts that, came, that became the Texas Receptus, those lines were tracked back to Antioch. Um, and the modern versions, and this is, again, no secret as well. They very, are very bold about this. this which, okay, So the modern versions come from Alexandria, Egypt, um, they, they, that's where those uh, originate back from. Okay, so let's, we'll hit a few references that we actually hit last week just to kind of set this stage again for external evidence. Uh, but Kyle, if you want to grab Acts 11.26, and then I'll grab Acts 13.1 and 2. So again, if we're just looking at Scripture, um, Antioch, the reason we believe it's a good thing that the Texas Receptus and that line of manuscripts comes from Antioch is because Antioch is viewed in a positive light in Scripture. Egypt is viewed in a negative light in Scripture. So, again, it's the text, a Textus Receptus. It's also called the Received Text, uh, different names such as that. But, Kyle, go ahead with that uh, Acts 11 reference there. Acts 11, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So that's the first place the Christians are named that is there in Antioch. And that's because that, that becomes the hub of Christianity. So you, obviously Jerusalem is not, and inside you know, the main parts of Israel, they're not predominantly Christian. That's why the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. And before he was converted, he... Uh, he I don't know why my mind is blank. I keep wanting to say tortured Christians. What, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I drew a blank. Persecuted. He persecuted. Yeah, there you go. I don't know why that word was nowhere in sight for me. But he persecuted Christians uh, or tortured them, I guess, is where I was going to go. So maybe, you know, I don't know. I know a little bit of stoning happened, so I would consider that torching, uh, torturing. Um, but so because it, Israel, because why was Israel primarily not, not Christian? Well, because they didn't receive Christ as the Messiah. John 1.11, he came into his own, and his own received him not. And so there was persecution in that. People were actually, throughout the book of Acts, you can see people leaving Israel. 
leaving Jerusalem and stuff like that for the sake of persecution. And so um, Antioch, which is in Syria, becomes the hub of Christianity. Okay, so you see that they're first called Christians there in Acts 11. Well, in Acts 13, again, we talked about Saul or Paul. Paul is uh, converted in Acts chapter 9. He, he, he's involved in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. He then gets converted in Acts chapter 9. I'm sorry, actually, it was the stoning of Stephen. That was Acts chapter 7. Okay, see, so he, was, he was involved in the stoning of, of uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was converted and, and saved in Acts chapter 9. Well, in Acts 13, verse 1 talks about these several men that are involved in the ministry um, there in Antioch. It says, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and it lists a bunch of people. I'm not going to read those because those names are crazy, many of them. But then verse 2, it says, as they ministered to the Lord. So these men are active in service in Antioch, where Christianity is, that's the, it's the main deal. And they ministered unto the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. So what we have here is church planning starting to happen. So they are, they are sending out um, missionaries, which is at this time Saul and Barnabas. And this is where after this, Saul begins to do the missionary journeys. And this is... This is where we get the biblical principle of how you actually plant churches. They come, churches are supposed to be planted from other churches. That's the way God set it up. And so not only do we see that Christians are first called Christians in Antioch, but we see that the work of the Lord of going and reproducing uh, churches in other places through the Apostle Paul starting, that happens. Uh, they're sent out from Antioch as well. So that's a good thing. Okay. Kyle, if you want to go to Genesis 12.10, and then I'll go to Genesis 50. Okay, so now let's look at Egypt again. Again, we mentioned this last week, so I don't want to be too redundant, but it's very important in the subject that we are hitting when going in detail about internal, I'm sorry, uh, external evidence with why these areas uh, or where the manuscripts came from is important. So Kyle's got the very first reference of Egypt, I believe, I believe it's first reference. And uh, go ahead with that, Kyle. Genesis 12, verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So that's how, that's the the law first mentioned there. That's how Egypt is always referenced typically as going down. And I mentioned this last week. They could have used the word south because somebody could say, well, geographically they are going down. And again, they are. Again, could use the word south. Uh, but it, it's a picture that, that going to Egypt is a, it's viewed in a negative light. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of a lot of study to understand that Egypt is viewed through a negative light too, because they are the the nation that the whole Exodus story is about that enslaved the nation of Israel. They you know they're a picture of the world. They're a picture of bondage. Pharaoh is a clear picture of the Antichrist. There's a lot of negatives there. Uh, okay, so so we have that there in Genesis 12. Well, in Genesis 50. Verse 24 and 25, we have the situation with Joseph being in Egypt. He has helped his family out. He's helped Israel out because there was a famine. And uh, Joseph dies. New Pharaoh comes in. Things are changing. But this is what it says about God's opinion with Joseph, Joseph after his death with his body being left in Egypt. Verse 24 says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. 
and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. Okay, so he didn't want those people, Israel. What are the 12 sons of Jacob? What are those that represent the 12 tribes of Israel? He didn't want them to stay there. He wanted to bring them out of that land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. He's promising with his brothers. He's saying, hey, you got to promise me something. Saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So he not only wanted his people out of there, but in just the significance of it. I mean, obviously, Joseph's bones being there really doesn't do anything. But God thought so, uh, he thought this was so important that he didn't want his remains to even stay there. Um, so that is God's view truly in Egypt, uh, of Egypt. It, I was looking at Genesis 13.1. This doesn't really have anything to do with Well, you were talking about coming up uh, or yeah. going down, being mm-hmm. a picture of the world. You know, 13.1 says, and Abram went up out of Egypt. Yeah. He and his wife, and it says, into the south. Oh, that's funny. Okay, like he's going yeah. up, but he's right. going to the south. He's just bringing a point. Yeah, that yeah. he's <laughs> that leaving Egypt is a is a good thing. Yeah, that's the picture, and it continues to do that in a lot of places. We just wouldn't have time to hit all of them. That would bore you to death. So, uh, okay, I'm going to go to one more reference. Acts chapter two. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two, verse nineteen and twenty. We also see that. God did not want his son, did not want the Lord Jesus to remain in Egypt. So Herod comes into the scene, uh, or he's the king there when Jesus is, uh, is born. He hears from the wise men that a king is born, and that obviously is a threat to him. So he does this deal where, where he's killing the babies. And so uh, the Lord directs uh, them to flee uh, Bethlehem, to flee Israel because of that. And they wind up in Egypt. Uh, but he doesn't want them to stay there for obvious reasons, as we've already said. And so verse 19 and 20 of that, it says, But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to... Uh, we'll see. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. So, okay, so again, just another example of that, that God did not want to remain there. So very clear. It's not hard. To, that's not a deep study. It's not hard to see the positive light of Antioch and the negative view of, of Egypt throughout Scripture. And so that is why where the manuscripts come from is, is a big deal. But it's, it's a lot more than that. It, you know, it's really what the manuscripts say and what they produced is a big problem too, which is part of external evidence. But that's kind of a starting point is where they come from. So what is the? Let's look at maybe some things about the history. Of Alexandria, so that's where the that's where the modern versions get their manuscripts, or where they the manuscripts they use to translate into the modern versions are done so from these Alexandrian texts. And again, that's something that's very open and talked about amongst them, the, the guys that use those. It's not not a secret; they pride themselves on that, actually. And so, let's look at some things about the history of Alexandria. So. The, just like I was mentioning that I think it's our second or third episode, we talked about the allegorical approach first, the literal approach to Scripture. We interpret the Bible literally. Now, the only way you can do that is, dispen- is through a dispensational lens and rightly dividing because there are some things that change throughout Scripture. And so uh, when approaching Scripture, though, you have two options. You can believe it word for word as you, as you see it, or you can try to spiritualize everything and say, well, what does that really mean? Now, we believe that God does 
teach some things in an allegorical manner, such as types and pictures. Um, and the word liken as are very important in our Bible. It gives pictures. Uh, Jesus taught in parables. And we talk about all that a lot more deeply in that episode of literal versus allegorical interpretation. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. And that's that's the golden rule. When the plain sense of Scripture makes good sense, yep. seek no other sense. Amen. Praise <laughs> the Lord. That's the truth. Take it literal. That's right. And so it, uh, that's okay. So so you maybe would take a step back and go, how did an allegorical approach to Scripture as the primary approach? How did that even become a thing? Well, it it first really got some bearings in Alexandria. Okay, so. Again, Alexandria is where their manuscripts come from. Alexandria is in Egypt, and uh, and they started this whole thing by the, this guy by the name of Clement started making around 190 A.D. You know, late 180 range in the year uh, started making this. He he had an allegorical approach to scripture, and he had a school there in. Uh, Alexandria, and obviously, what does a school do? What's the purpose of a school? It's to teach others, and they begin to teach that, and that begin to grow and become a thing. Now, I'll say this: when you think about an allegorical approach to Scripture, you can't not think about the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church, their primary view of Scripture is allegorical. Uh, they, they, I mean, that's why. Again, no offense if you, you maybe you're a Catholic listener to this, I'm not sure, but Catholicism is completely, in every area, completely contradictory to what I would say a Bible believer is, or like we're Baptists, but not all Baptists believe like we do. But they're completely in opposition to a Bible believer. They do not believe that salvation is a one time transaction of, of, someone entrusting faith in Jesus Christ and Christ sacrificed alone. They do not believe that. They believe there's there's uh, things they have to keep uh, part of the Catholic Church. There's ordinances. They believe you can lose your salvation. There's a lot of stuff. That's just the foundational things that are so heretical that have to do with eternal life. They teach purgatory. There, there's a lot of things. This is not an episode about Catholicism. But what you'll see in this whole thing of external evidence is that Alexandria... Egypt produced this allegorical approach to scripture and you can see the Catholic church woven throughout this whole process. So all the guys, I'm going to mention men that were key in all of this um, throughout history and all the way to the point where we're at now. And they all have very Catholic based beliefs. Now they would maybe not claim to be Catholics, but you'll see it interwoven through all of this. So again, they, that's where it started. This allegorical approach to Scripture began to become a thing and more popularized in Alexandria, Egypt, by a guy by the name of Clement in this school that was in Alexandria. But I'll say this, that's a, uh, an allegorical approach to Scripture, as I've already made mention of, is a heretical view of Scripture, as that being your primary view. Because again, that is what Satan does in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve attempts to quote the Word of God to Satan and he, he, what does Satan do? He, he not only casts doubt on the Word of God, but he reinterprets it. And see, that's the problem with so many things when people approach the Word of God is because they don't look at it and just simply take it literally, they get to make it say whatever in the world they want it to say. Like I've actually got a, I'm actually not a fan of Bible studies where people get around and read scripture and they say, what, is, what do you think that means? 
and, and I get where people are coming from when they're trying to do that. They're trying to include people. Um, but at the end of the day, no scripture is given. You know, it's not given by private. There's no private interpretation in scripture according to Peter. And so what if somebody says, well, I feel like it means this. Well, they're either right or they're wrong. There is no like secret thing that, you know, I was enlightened to this. Even though scripture doesn't prove this, this is what God taught me in this. Well, if it does, it's not if it's not proven in scripture and backed up by scripture, then there's nothing to go by. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think and feel and and that kind of thing. It matters what scripture teaches comparing scripture with scripture. It has to be defended by scripture. And so that whole view is very popular, even amongst uh, good churches sometimes when people are learning how to study the Bible, they sometimes take that approach of what does this really mean? Well, again, there are picture forms, but it, it, it means what it says in Scripture. And so Bible believers have always taken a literal approach to Scripture. Um, Kyle, if you want to go to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, verse uh, 17 through 21. So if you're following along with us, Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. And so this is the disciples coming up and they're talking, uh, I think actually Peter's preaching here, if I'm thinking about this right. And he is talking about prophecy, essentially. He, he, he begins by talking about the first coming and how the prophets in the Old Testament predicted it. And it literally came true. And then he talks about the second coming. And so where you see a lot of allegorical approach of Scripture lead to is people don't actually interpret prophecy in a literal way. Matter of fact, the Catholic Church believes that the entire book of Revelation is like mysticism, essentially. They don't believe it's factually things that will come in history. They believe it's like some secret little secret sauce book where you got to decipher what it's really meaning, like crazy little hidden gems. It's not that. It's literally telling us what is to come. So go ahead with that. Verse 17 through 21. Acts three seventeen and now brethren I wot that through ignorance ye did it as did also your rulers but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer he hath so fulfilled so there's the first coming it's a, it was a literal prophecy in the Old Testament Jesus came and it happened then go ahead with nineteen repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Keep going. And, yeah. and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So that's talking about the second coming. And so Jesus, we reading that, Peter believed that he was he that the prophets predicted that, that Jesus would come the first time and suffer. And he literally did. I mean, you know, I, I found that. Most people don't take that allegorically because if that was allegorical, then Jesus didn't really die. Then Jesus didn't really offer eternal life. And what are we, maybe this whole universe, maybe this whole life is just a big old illusion, right? They believe that. But then we also see that Peter in, the, in verses 19 through 21 believes that because the prophets in the Old Testament predicted and, and prophesied, obviously being inspired by the Spirit of God, being led by the Spirit of God, they said that he would return and he would come back and there would be the restitution of all things and times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And that is his second coming in the millennium. And so that's, that's Peter who walked with Jesus, uh, was his disciple. 
And so Bible believers have always approached Scripture literally. That's the way we approach Scripture. And so, um, again, this allegorical approach that became such a thing and grew th- from Alexandria, Egypt, is anti the way Bible believers have always been. It's in opposition of that. And so, again, I mentioned this guy by the name of Clement, uh, but he is the one that really, around the late 100 AD, started popularizing this, this, this approach. And really what he did is he mixed Scripture with philosophy. And, and, and that's really a, a, a major problem in Christianity today and in the local churches is because Christianity has allowed philosophy to mix in with Scripture. I have found that people may even claim to believe the Bible, but they don't believe it's sufficient for all of pro- the, all the problems in life. Well, Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that it has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. That's either true or it's not. So if somebody were to say, you know what, I got a problem. It's like, okay, well, let's, look, let's, let's see what Scripture has to say about it. Well, I get that, but I need some professional help. I need some, okay, and do what you want. But what someone is saying when they say, but, when someone wants to open the word of God, or they say, well, I need this all. Okay, at the end of the day, they don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And so it's either sufficient, it's either our final authority, it either offers everything that I need for my life, or it doesn't. And it's just that that cut and dry. And so philosophy has creeped into the church today. I mean, Christian counseling alone. Boy, it's a weird subject. But Christian counseling alone, for the most part, for the most part, I believe in biblical counseling, but a lot of Christian counseling is actually not biblical counseling. It is philosophy. It is uh, psychology wisdom of this world mixed in with a little bit of Christian principles uh, here and there. Well, that's, that's mixing the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God together, and they're in opposition to each other. And so this guy by the name of Clement, he, was, he started doing that in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, in this school he has, and he was mixing scripture with philosophy uh, one random thing to show you the how this the how Catholicism is so intertwined with all of this is he actually was known to believe in purgatory, and that's straight Catholicism. Okay, so Clement he followed he actually followed. There's not as much that I I can find when studying this stuff out by this other guy, but he followed behind a man by the name of Pontanius. I guess that's how you say his name. And that guy is actually the one that when, when Clement was following him, that is actually what started the school in Alexandria around 100 and not the year 190. Okay. So that is where this line of thinking became popularized. Okay. Just want to give you some, some facts about these people. One book uh, that was written by Clement was called uh, The Outlines. Okay. And I actually have an article, Dad Gummin, I meant to pull that up earlier. Um, an article that is mentioned uh, are some some quotes by people from, you know what, I'm actually not doing that. And we don't even have to edit that out. I don't have time for that. Okay. But you go study out this book that he wrote by the outlines and see certain things that people uh, mentioned about that. And, and people had problems with it that did not view scripture allegorically because 
much of that book was, again, promoting that view of Scripture. Okay, another guy comes on the scene by the name Origen. So this guy by the name of Origen comes on, and I, I actually didn't write the year. I actually have Origen right here. Okay, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. 184 to 254. Okay, so he, he comes on the scene. He's obviously living in the same time frame as uh, as Clement, but he is a little bit younger. So he comes, and he, I believe he dies a little bit later than Clement. Um, so Origen was is big in this. He he's also was from Alexandria, was involved in, in that area. And he was actu- actually called by other people a philosopher. So again, you can see this, this admixture of, of a little Bible with you know, the wisdom of this world. Because at the end of the day, that's where, like, the, the, talking about the problem in the local churches nowadays of this admixture of a little bit of Bible principles mixed in with, with philosophy or with psychology, is the the that's where all this is really really first became a thing and it just continued to carry on a little bit of leaven leaven at the whole lump that's right mess it all up yeah so origins called uh our, our origin was actually called a philosopher by many um he wrote many books as well and most of his books not a shocker here most of his books dealt with textual textual criticism Okay, then there was a guy, man, I did not know external evidence was going to take this long. So we're, I'm going to start moving here, big guy, so we can get to internal. Uh, but Jerome was another guy. Jerome was born in the, thir- in the 300s, so, you know, about 100 or so years later. 100 and some change. He was born in the 300s, and again, no surprise, he was known as a textual uh, critic as well. Then we have the famous Augustine. Augustine was born in the late 300s. Again, you go study out this stuff. We don't have time to dissect all of them deeply, but just to kind of highlight them. Uh, Augustine was very Catholic in his beliefs, very heavy into similarities to Catholicism. And Augustine is actually who got the ball rolling for what we now call uh, Calvinism. So uh, John Calvin, this is, again, this is not a secret as well. John Calvin quotes Augustine like crazy. Matter of fact, Augustine was the, was the uh, biggest influence on John Calvin's theology or his life, his belief system. And so Calvin actually, I've never read books by Calvin, but from what I can find in research, and you know, maybe you can find different stuff, whatever. But Calvin supposedly quotes Augustine over 1,700 times. And I did find this stat, according to the books that Calvin wrote, that more than 50% of his citations in his book are from Augustine. So if you like Calvinism and you adhere to that, then maybe you do your deal with uh, your ESV or modern version, whatever, and do your thing. But we're obviously on the opposing side of that. Okay, then we're gonna, I'm going to skip way far ahead to very popular men in this discussion by the name of Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort uh, were around in the 1800s, so we've skipped literally uh, 1,200 years or so. And, uh, and these men were the men that were heavily involved to actually begin the process of the modern versions that we have today. Okay, these two, these two men obviously believed that the King James was an inferior product. They didn't believe it was superior. They believed it had a lot of issues, and that's why they felt the need to uh, start pushing different uh, versions. 
And so they believed that the more accurate manuscripts were not that they didn't believe that the, Tex- the Texas Receptus was the most act uh, most accurate manuscript, not at all. They believed that the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus were the most uh, accurate manuscripts. Now notice this: the Sinaiticus was di- was discovered in Saint in the Saint Catherine's Monastery. In 1844. So it was lost for a period of time, which is kind of concerning considering the preservation of Scripture. But it was lost, but they found it at St. Catherine's. Well, Catholic deal there. So that's interesting. And then the Vaticanus, the other manuscript they believe that they should use, that was found in 1475. You ain't going to believe this. In the, the library in the Vatican. And if you don't know what the Vatican is, that's where the Catholic Church hub is in Rome, where the Pope is. So both of these uh, manuscripts literally go straight back to Catholic backgrounds. That's where they're found. And so that's, again, you can see how Catholicism is intertwined in this whole uh, entire process. Okay, so a few random facts. I just wanted to mention these. Westcott did not believe in the indwelling spirit of God for the believer. It's a doctrine he he did not adhere to. Westcott and Hort... Uh, both did not affirm the personal nature of the devil. So they mentioned, you know, uh, an opposing uh, authority and those kind of things, but they don't adhere to just to straight out the clear teaching that there is Satan and he is who he is. Okay. Uh, Westcott and Hort, uh, let's see, they both did not believe in a literal heaven. Hort denied the literal return of Christ, which is, by the way, no shocker because they have an allegorical approach to Scripture, and a lot of allegorical uh, teaching makes them believe that prophecy is allegorical, which they're like, what does that really mean? They don't believe he's really coming. Okay, and then Westcott believed that eternal life was a process. They did not believe, Westcott did not believe that eternal life was received at a time and place where someone personally exercises faith in Jesus Christ. So that is obviously... Uh, super concerning. Here's a random fact from Westcott yeah. I saw the other day. He thought that all women uh, should be called Mary, so he renamed his wife Mary, even though that wasn't her name. Wow. <laughs> That's very Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> so, and by the way, just a side note, we talked about this in that other episode I mentioned of literal versus allegorical, but Calvinism is all intertwined in all of this too because Augustine was so intertwined with it, and that's where Calvinism comes from. Calvinism just put his little twist on it. And then later after Calvin, that's when they developed the tulip system to kind of organize it. Um, But all of this is intertwined in this allegorical approach to Scripture, which is Catholic-based. So I just want you to know that if you're a Calvinist, we obviously still love you. Um, We don't need your teaching. I was going to say we love you, we need you. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think we need your teaching, but we do love you. I hope that wasn't too abrasive. Uh, but I will say that you ought to study that out because if you don't, if you're, if you don't believe in Catholicism, but you claim to be a Calvinist, dangerous line of of similarity there. I will say. All right, so that's what I've got for external evidence. I don't know, Kyle, if you have anything else you want to add for for some of that. Um, no. Nah. Okay, and then we... Uh, leave the history stuff to you. Huh? <laughs> leave the history yeah. stuff to you. <laughs> it, I'll be honest, it's boring. I actually 
hated that 43 minutes of this has been history, so I hope this hasn't bored you. But let's kind of dive in real quickly into internal evidence. This is much more simple. Again, this is comparing product to product. So the two major things that we see when comparing product to product is that the modern versions remove verses. Uh, we listed that last week. You can go back and reference that. I don't have it in front of me, but I think the NIV was like 16 verses they removed. Uh, the ESV, I think, was 18. Um, there's a bunch. Just go, you can even research that stuff for yourself. But they remove verses. And so let's hit a few that are very popular that most of the modern versions, versions remove. So Kyle, if you want to go to 1 John 5, 7. And then I'm going to go to Acts 3. I'm sorry, Acts 8. So Kyle's verse, most of the modern versions do not put in there because they will tell you uh, that it's not in the, their manuscript. Well, the reason it's not in their manuscript is because they're coming from a, a Sinaiticus or a Vaticanus that we mentioned earlier, which have very you know Catholic uh, backgrounds to them. Okay, so go ahead with that First John 5, 7. First John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So that's a concerning verse to leave out. That's a verse, uh, probably, I'm trying to think, yeah, probably the clearest verse on the Trinity, on the, yeah. the Godhead, that, yeah. you know, the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that verse is removed in most versions that are not the King James. If Yeah, if, if it is there, it just has... For there are three that bear record in heaven. Yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't actually list say them. anything. Right. Yeah. So and it depends on version to version. Yeah. You have to look that look at that. But uh, but none of them actually list out. Yeah. Some of them remove the verse entirely, and some of them um, do like Kyle said, which would be a word situation. Okay, Acts eight thirty seven. This is what it says. Acts eight thirty six. This is talking about the Ethiopian unit getting saved as pre as Philip is preaching to him. And uh, verse 36 says, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, this is verse 37 in our King James Bible. And this is the verse left out in a lot of modern versions, which is super concerning. And Philip said, or is it, is it they leave it out or they, they just change the word? Yeah, it's just gone. It's gone, yeah. It, it still gives the number 37, though. It does. Okay. So yeah, they don't skip number. Right. They, they have the number there, but it's like they'll skip number. I guess sometimes they, they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it goes from 36 to 38. Like they don't mess up the number of the right. rest of the verses. Well, okay. <laughs> and so verse 37 in our King James Bible says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So the Ethiopian eunuch is saying, Hey, I want to get baptized. Like what keeps me from getting baptized? Well, Philip tells him, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there we have the whole Romans 10, 9 thing. The belief in the heart, confession with the mouth. The, that, that the, Ethiopian, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is getting saved in verse 37 because that's what's required to get baptized is to actually be saved because baptism is not a part of eternal life. It's not a part of salvation. And then in verse 38, it says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went back down to the water and both Philip and the eunuch and he, was, and he baptized them. So many modern versions, skip verse 37. And it, so it shows verse 36 where the Ethiopian dude is like, hey, what keeps me from getting baptized? And then it jumps to, and they, they pulled over and got, he got baptized. That, that is very clear. That is a misleading 
translation to show or to support the teaching of regeneral uh, or baptismal regeneration. In other words, that you get saved through baptism, which is what the Church of Christ believe, by the way. The Catholic Church has a lot of stuff with that, again, about keeping the uh, the sacraments of the church and stuff like that. And by the way, a lot of these guys that were in this Alexandrian line, uh, they believed in baptismal regeneration which is makes sense why in the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus they, they would leave that verse out. It makes perfect sense. So that's super alarming too. All right, uh, Kyle, if you want to go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Let me hit that one. 17, 21. Yeah. How be it this... Am I reading that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, How be it this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So... Uh, there's a ver- that verse is left out in a lot of versions, and some of them leave it in there and just change the wording to, and this kind c- c- uh, doesn't go out but by prayer. They completely leave out the fasting part, which is weird because it's a situation where the disciples are not able to cast out a demon with somebody, and they're, they come to Jesus, and Jesus does it, and they're like, what do we do wrong? You know, They're talking with him and stuff, and he tells them, hey, there's just some things, there's just some spiritual opposition, some strongholds that people will experience that it needs prayer and fasting. Because what is fasting? Fasting is prayer on steroids. It's an intentional time of prayer where you're you're literally suffering, uh, withholding things from your body so that you can spend extra time with the Lord in prayer. So really weird that they would leave that out, but that's just another one. Uh, we're not, we don't have to go here, but Mar- in Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20, they don't believe, the Alexandrians don't believe that that text is supposed to be in there. Now, what a lot of them have, have done is they, some of them will leave that in there, but they'll have it bracketed. They'll have it sort of separated and they'll have like a footnote at the bottom, which I could care less about a footnote because that's just a man's input anyway. But they'll have a footnote at the bottom that says, this is actually not part of the original Greek text. So... They separate that to let the reader know, in, in their opinion, that it shouldn't be in there. All right. So those are, again, you go look. There's a lot more verses. We just don't have to, time to hit them. Those are just some key ones that uh, I thought were maybe important to mention. You got any other super, maybe you want to go to Psalm, uh, well, that'll be kind of in the, a different section. You got any others that just completely leave it out that you put down? Uh, I mean, I just had a couple that I thought was crazy. I, yeah. The other day I was looking at Isaiah 14. Uh-huh. I'm about to flip through so I can read it. Uh, Isaiah 14 verse 12 uh, it says how art thou fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations and every other version takes out the word Lucifer there mm. and uh, just uh, the NIV for an example it gives it changes Lucifer to morning star yeah um, yep. so now you're saying morning star uh, how art thou cut down, you know, which did us weaken the nations. Well, if you're studying the Bible like we're supposed to, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you track morning star to Revelation 22, 16. So in the same Bible, NIV, checks out Lucifer, puts in morning star. Yeah. And in the NIV, you get to Revelation 22, 16. Uh, and I'm going to read that. It, it's actually saying Jesus Christ is the morning star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things, in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So if, if you're reading one of those other versions, 
you're reading that, how art thou fallen from heaven, Jesus? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did us weaken the nations? And that's a, yeah, that's a good that's one. crazy. Absolutely. That's yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's massive. That's, well, and it goes back to what I, I, I tried to make mention of last week, and that is, uh, I don't want to encourage anybody to read a modern version because I don't believe them. Uh, I believe they still contain principles and stuff like I've mentioned, and you can still grow from them. But it, it, it goes back to what I said last week in the sense that if you just want to be a casual reader, you're probably okay at times to read a modern version. Again, I don't, I'm not recommending it. Uh, but you may not come across these things. But if you want to be a studier, it, and it, like Kyle said, the only way that you'll ever, you would ever catch that is if you actually study and try to compare Scripture with Scripture, which is how we study, um, then you can't do that without a King James Bible. I'm sorry. You just can't do it the same way. It's completely jacked up because because of that kind of thing. And so, obviously, like we just mentioned, that it removes verses. But like Kyle just said, that 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 rolls us into the second point that I wanted to make, and that is that it changes it changes words and verses. So not only does it completely remove some verses, which is concerning, but it does change the words. Which again, like I said, I said this last week, they have to. If they don't change a good portion of the text then they can't sell it as a new product, as a new version. Yeah. They can't have a copyright on it because it can't be, it won't, you know, it's not different and they can't make money on, on book sales. Yeah. It's a money game. And so even, because you know what's weird? Is many of these modern versions, even though they go by their different manuscripts, sometimes they, like the NIV is terrible about this. It bails on what even their Greek manuscript says. And goes with something. You know why it does that? Because they have to change so much to sell the the book. They can't make money if they don't. And so that's that's the leading factor in in a lot of this. Absolutely, it really is. It really is. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that people can't see that. Um, So, like I said, not only do they remove verses, but they also change words. Uh, So, Kyle, you want to go to one of our favorite verses, Second Timothy two fifteen. Timothy 2.15. Uh, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we love that verse. We've quoted it a million times. That's that's literally the verse we use to tell us and that charges us to be studiers, not just readers, but studiers of the word of God. Um, and in what's crazy about that, and we've made mention of this in the past, but Every other version, every other version removes the word study there. It doesn't tell them to study. Even the New King James. Maybe there's a New King James guy out there and you're like, well, I'll read the closest thing. And I'll be honest with you and say the New King James by far is the closest to the King James. But it ain't perfect. It's got its issues and that's just one of them. And it doesn't actually give the command there to study. Yeah, so even taking out these and thous and yep. gays and whatever, like the new King James does, that's, that's a problem. The, the, <laughs> the purpose, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this, the purpose of the these and the thous and the yees is during, okay, when, when all this was going down with King, the, the time frame of King James, they didn't, they were at the place, they didn't even use that wording quite as much as you see it in scripture. But the reason that it's, it's remained in scripture and remained in the King James version, even when they, when they updated the language in 1769, which is the text we have, uh, 
where it went from the crazy spelling of the 1611 and that kind of thing, and they, they kind of updated that, and there was some there was some uh, some printing issues that they fixed, not changes to the text at all. But when they when they did that, they left the these and the the yees and all those kind of things. And the reason why is because it's more precise in who it's addressing. So thee and thou is singular, and ye is plural. So matter of fact, there's actually a text in Exodus that, that shows us greatly. You can probably find this if you were to do some Googling. But it's, it's sort of like this. If I'm talking to a group of people and I say, hey, you, uh, you better do this. You means plural and singular. It can mean either one. And so there's a, there's a spot in Exodus that kind of gives, uh, God's talking to Moses about something. I can't remember where it's at, but he, he, it changes, uh, the word thee from the King James or, or thou from the King James to you, but he's talking to this group of people that he just so happens to be specifically addressing Moses, but it, it draws the singularity away from Moses. Yeah. And that may seem, uh, like not a big deal to you. And again, Maybe none of this is a big deal to you, but that's the reason that those are in there. Is is it's the, again the specificity of Scripture. It's, it's sort of like this. John three three says, "Ye must be born again." He told Nicodemus that because every single person collectively, like everybody in the world, if they want to experience a relationship with Christ and go to heaven, they got to be born again. But then you get to Romans 10 and he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, why does he use thou there? Well, because it's a personal decision. Nobody gets saved in a group. Nobody gets saved because their mom or their dad or their grandma or grandpa or, or their friend was saved. It's a personal thing. And so that's, that's really what all that's about. I'm not sure if we've ever mentioned that before. So that's very important. Um, maybe for time's sake, Kyle, I have written here Psalm 12, 6 and 7. We did mention this in the past. Um, but, or yeah, you, you can go there. Um, so, so in, in our King James Bible, uh, go ahead and, and read that, Kyle, if you would. Uh, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And so what happens in, in the modern versions uh, is it actually gets rid of... So verse 6 is talking about the words of the Lord. And then verse 7 is talking about the preservation of them. Well, what the modern versions do is it puts the preservation on people rather than God's words. Well, the people were being talked about previous to verse, five, uh, verse 6. But then God changes what he's talking about to verse 6 are to the words of God in verse 6 and then talks about preservation. So the the modern versions do like I joked about how my wife will do when she will be talking about something and then she'll change subjects and talk about something else and then make a, a brashful statement about something that to me about the most recent conversation makes no sense. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, I was talking about the thing we were talking about 10 minutes ago. And I'm like, how am I supposed to follow that? Well, that's what the modern versions do. They don't uh, work through that in context the right way. And so why would they do that? Well, because the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, they don't believe in the preservation of Scripture because they don't believe that God's perfect words are actually available. So they have to change that. And by the way, 
If it's his specific words that are kept, again, what these guys can't do is make new versions, change words to make book sales to make money. Because that's a promise of preservation in our King James Bible there in Psalm 12. Okay? Uh, Just for reference, I'll hit this. Philippians 4.13 is a lot of people's favorite verse. It changes that we can do all things through Christ to we can do all things through Him. Maybe that's not a big deal, but it's interesting. I'm again, I'm not even mad at them. They had to change some words there. They had to, or they couldn't sell their book, like I said. But they, they, it, it, ta- it shows a lesser uh, spe- uh, specific approach to Christ being who we get our strength through. I, I mentioned this last week, Gen- Genesis one twenty seven. The word uh, God tells Adam and Eve to replenish the earth. There's very, very, very clear teaching on Scripture that there were things on earth before Adam and Eve, and it was Lucifer and the sons of God who ended up following Lucifer in his fall. And Lucifer was in Eden. Ezekiel 28 teaches us that. Well, the modern version is there. Genesis 127 talks about he tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth. Well, that doesn't give any proof of something before Adam and Eve, and so that removes that doctrine that is very clearly shown in our King James Bible. Malachi 4, verse 2, as I mentioned last week, uh, it talks about the Son of Righteousness, and the Son is capitalized. The King James translators capitalize that, which teaches us the comparison of the, S- the S-U-N to the S-O-N, and modern versions, not, I don't know if all of them do, but a lot of them uncapitalize that Son, which is kind of a big deal draws the attention off the deity of who that's actually talking about. Um, and then maybe the last one I'll give, Kyle, and I don't know if you have ones you want to add, um, if so, but uh, John 3.36. If you want to maybe go to there, yeah. John 3.36, and he's going to read it in the King James Version. I'm going to read it in the ESV because that seems to be the, the version that is growing so rapidly. Uh, I don't have a certain odd against that other than Calvinists love that version typically. Let's pray. Is that the newest one? I think 2001 was announced. Okay. Is it? Yeah, Let's that's pray. the one that everybody, all these critics and the scholars, claim to to say is the closest to the originals. Yeah. Well, when they say closest to the originals, remember they're talking about the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. Yeah. We don't believe that. We believe those are hogwash manuscripts. So take that for what you will. But he's got, so he's got it in the King James. I want you to notice the wording change here is really drastic. Yeah, John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So it makes it very uh, very simple there in our King James Bible. He that believes, eternal life. He that doesn't believe, doesn't have eternal life. Okay? This is what it says in the ESV. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, that sounds good. But then notice the second part doesn't line up. It says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Well, in our King James Bible, salvation is not contingent upon obedience. It's contingent upon belief. It's contingent upon faith. And so what this does is a Calvinist would teach, and many other different denominations, they would not teach Different denominations would not, would not believe in eternal security, and that could be a proof text for that, for them, in the ESV. Well, Calvinists believe that if you don't persevere to the end, in other words, 
live your life like you're saved all the way to the end, then maybe you weren't part of the elect anyway and you weren't saved. Well, that certainly looks believable from an ESV Bible in John 3.36, which again is why the, the Calvinists tend to love the ESV. I'm not saying everybody that reads the ESV is a Calvinist, but they tend to love it. And uh, I would actually never debate a Calvinist with the ESV. Like, because if I'm debating him with the King James and he's debating me with the ESV, we're going to continually have an, we're going to continue to have issues because <laughs> it's going to say different things. I would only debate a Calvinist if he's willing to use a King James to prove his stance. That's just a sidebar. You probably don't care about that, but that just thought I feel like I, I feel like throwing that in there. Yeah. In case there's any Calvinists <laughs> out there that wants to eventually debate us when we get into Calvinism, I don't know. Um, but so we laid out a lot of things about external evidence, a lot of history. Hope that didn't bore you. Um, but that's just the truths of it. And you can do your own research on that. Laid out some simple things about internal evidence. And it really comes down, it's just comparing product to product and internal evidence. And our problem is modern versions remove lots of verses. And they, they even more than removing verses, they change a ton of wording. Again, because they have to. And so I thought we'd hit a few of those that are very important. And again, there's, oh man, we'd have to do 10 weeks on this to even semi-exhaust the, the word changes throughout scripture. I mean, it's again, they, it's a ton because they had to make it a ton. So Kyle, you got any other ver- references that you wanted to hit or uh, make mention of? Or I mean, I'm going to give a couple. Okay. Uh, and talking about the deity of God uh, and preeminence of Christ, uh, Genesis 22, 8, and talking about Abraham. Uh, and the King James, it says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Well, all the other versions change, uh, well, they just add for in there before himself. So they say, we'll provide for himself a lamb. Mm, and yeah, maybe, maybe that's not a big deal, I guess. It, it's not wrong, but that version is just deficient. It's not as, It's not showing the picture that Christ himself yeah. is going to become yep. the sacrifice. Yeah. In the King James, you have a dual application there. Absolutely. And all the other ones, it, it takes that out. Yep, that's good. Um, boy, you were just talking about being saved, and I've posted this on Facebook, and it cause problems but first corinthians 118 in the king james says for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us with us which are saved it is the power of god and every other version niv esv rsv whatever you want to look at says but to us who are being saved mm. and that there's that's putting works on it that's putting i'm yep. doing something for salvation and that's not what God says at all. Yeah. Well, that uh, that goes back to uh, the external evidence. Yeah. Where Westcott, I mentioned, we, of course, they use the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, which is what those modern versions are using as manuscript. Well, Westcott believed that eternal life was a process. Yep. So you see what's going on there. It's very consistent throughout yeah. their versions. Now, you could say after salvation, there's a process. Right. There's a process of sanctification, yeah. process of growth, process... Yeah, definitely, definitely a problem there. Definitely a different teaching, and that's where a lot of people, because you know, I've had these conversations with people throughout the years and stuff, and and one of the first things people go to is, you know, it says the same thing. It mean, it, they say it means the same thing. Well, maybe in some texts it does. Again, it's not the perfect words. We don't believe in the other versions, so I want the perfect words. But maybe it does mean the same things, and maybe there are principles that mean the same thing. But, and there's a lot of examples where it doesn't, like he just read. It's just, that's just not the same. And so it goes back to the, the, the question and the subject. If they're saying different things, and oftentimes when they're saying different things, it means clear two different, 
two different uh, teachings of Scripture, which one are you going to go with? Yeah. What's your final authority? Which one are you going to hang your hat on to say, well, this is what I believe it is? I believe this one's right and this one's wrong. Because two things that are not the same mean that one is right and one is wrong. And that's harsh in today's reality. People don't like to think like that, but that's the truth. Yeah. If they say different, two things that are different are not the same. Yep. It's just that simple. And a lot of the other ones I had, we ain't got to read them all, but it was a lot of them were them taking out verses or changing verses that have to do with us, our sin. Like yeah. Matthew, when he's talk, calling the Pharisees and Sadducees and all them hypocrites, and a lot of those verses, those are gone. Yep, absolutely. And nobody wants to see their sin. That's right. The blood's <laughs> gone a lot throughout yeah. Scripture too, stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so the, the leading factors and all that is the love of money, like we yep. said earlier, and, and the fear of man, really. They, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't want that on them. Yep, uh, that's right. But yeah, last week I mentioned Mark chapter uh, 7, but that's that's what all these other versions are. It's putting aside the commandments of God and putting their own tradition on it. Yep. Uh, and he gave the history of it at the beginning of this. That's right. But So this is a good series. Yeah, absolutely. Third part, fourth part next week, yep. maybe a guest. Yes, yeah, so that's, 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 that's what we're hoping for, Lord willing. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, and again, check us out on Facebook if you haven't followed the Facebook page. Same name, Caffeinated Bible Chatter, YouTube channel. We don't have video yet, but the, the podcast is on YouTube. If you, if you haven't subscribed to that, uh, maybe video coming soon. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. Eventually. Yeah. Praise the Lord. It's coming. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all in the next one.